Hey, happy Family Day weekend. I am really glad to see each and every one of you. Since it's Family Day weekend, where are my married people at? If you're married and you're happy, throw your hands up. If you're married and you're not happy, do it anyway, okay? Uh, Okay, all right, a lot of you are married. How many of you guys are single and maybe looking? Okay, a couple of hands up, you know, that's okay, nothing wrong with that. If you peep somebody that you like, let me know, I might be able to make an introduction for you today, okay? Hey, I believe that God wants every single one of his married followers to have a strong, wonderful, Christ-centered marriage. I really believe that's his goal for every single one of you. I think God's design is for all of his people, whether they're married or single or, you know, whatever their uh, relationship status might be, that he really wants his people to have the healthiest and deepest relationships possible, which is kind of surprising to me in that light that given all of the marriages that are spoken about in the Bible, basically all of them are terrible. Did you guys know this? Nearly every single marriage in the Bible is awful. They are not good examples for you to follow. Seriously, almost zero examples of good and godly marriages throughout the scripture. I mean, it starts in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, each other into sin. Abraham wasn't satisfied with his wife, Sarah. So he started sleeping with their nanny, a lady named Hagar. Jacob married Leah just so he could get closer to Leah's sister, Rachel. Job's wife got so angry with him one time during an argument that she said, I wish you would curse God and die. Now, listen, I've said some things I regret in marital arguments before. I'm just going to be honest, okay? But I've never gone quite that far. I mean, that is a a really harsh thing to say. David and Bathsheba's marriage began out of coercion and violence. Solomon famously had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. I don't know how that guy got anything done, okay? (laughs) Then we've got the prophet Hosea's wife, Gomer. If you know about Gomer, you know about Gomer. If you don't know about Gomer, don't Google it because it, it, like, you are not prepared for what it says about her. The New Testament is not any better. Did you know the, the scriptures tell us that the apostle Peter had a wife? It's true. And you know what, what the scripture reveals to us about the apostle Peter's wife? That she had a mom and one time the mom got sick. That's it. Like that's all the play that Peter's wife gets in the scripture. It's crazy. We're told later in the New Testament that some of the other disciples also took spouses for themselves but we're never given any details. We're not told which ones, what were the spouse's names, what was the marriage like. We're not given any sort of information about that whatsoever. Then we get to the book of Acts. We get the uh, husband and wife couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They lied and died, if you know that story. It's so bad, okay? It's so bad that the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, when he is giving his biggest treatise on marriage, he is giving like his best arguments, his best teachings, for married couples that by the time he gets to the end of it, he literally says, you know what? It might be best if all of y'all just remain single. (laughs) The Bible actually says that. Okay. So if we're looking at positive examples in the scripture, just maybe we can narrow it down to the new Testament. There are three good marriages that are specifically referenced in the new Testament. The first is Mary and Joseph. 
obviously, but it's kind of like, I almost don't want to hold them up as a great example for everyone, including myself, because come on, this is the holy family and they had literally the benefit of a perfect child. Okay. So I'm not totally sure that their marriage is going to be a superb template for us to follow. We get um, a a related couple to Mary and Joseph, uh, a, a husband and a wife named Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are the parents of John the Baptist and they have from everything we can tell in the scripture, a great marriage. The problem is there's really not a lot that's said about them. Kind of the, the most interesting thing about their marital dynamic is that they were really old when she got pregnant with John the Baptist. Like that's kind of it, right? So what am I supposed to learn from that? Keep trying, I guess. I don't know. Okay. But like, I, so we've got these two examples. One might be too far out there for us to follow. One is like helpful, but I don't know. It seems a narrow use case. And then we get to the third couple. Tucked away inside of the book of Acts is a couple that very unfortunately doesn't get a lot of respect and honor and coverage in the modern church. And I do think that it's incredibly unfortunate because this couple turns out to be like a gospel power couple, you guys. They are a wonderful example of what a marriage can look like when a husband and wife are united together uh, to one another. They are committed to Jesus. They might actually be the best example of a godly marriage in the entire scriptures. So today, as we kick off this new series called Characters, each week, we're going to look at one character from the Bible and kind of tell their story. Uh, We're going to start with the story of Priscilla and Aquila, this gospel power couple. Anybody familiar with Priscilla and Aquila? Okay, a couple of you guys are. Most of you guys, though, probably haven't. Priscilla and Aquila are only mentioned seven times in the Bible, okay? Only seven times. But nearly everything that we're told about them, we find in one chapter, Acts chapter number 18. So we're going to read about 10 verses from Acts 18. Verses will be here on the screen. You'll be able to track with me. But I'm going to tell you from the jump that you're going to get really confused and lost by all the names and places in this passage. So as we read this, you're like, I have no clue what's going on. That's okay. I'm going to help you get there by the end of the message, all right? Acts chapter number 18 verses uh, one through uh, 26 is essentially, but we'll, we'll pare it down and just read a few highlights. Um, the, the book of Acts is the story of the early church. Jesus has been crucified. He has been resurrected and then he's ascended into heaven. He's left behind his apostles and disciples, including a guy named Paul to begin new churches, to spread the message of the good news. And so in Acts chapter number 18, we read then Paul, the, the church planner and missionary, he left Athens and went to Corinth, two cities in ancient Greece. There, he became acquainted with a Jewish man named Aquila. Aquila was born in Pontus, and he had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, Aquila and Priscilla, for they were tent makers, or leather workers is probably the best translation there. They were tent makers, just as the apostle Paul was. Verse 4, we read each Sabbath... Every Saturday, Paul was at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. All right, jump down to verse number 18. The Bible tells us Paul stayed there in Corinth for some time after that. Then he said goodbye to the brothers and sisters, and he went to the nearby region of Cancrea. Then he set sail for Syria, and notice this, he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. 
They stopped first at the port of Ephesus and Paul left the others, including Priscilla and Aquila behind in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus, while he uh, was there, he went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And from there, he went up and visited the church at Jerusalem and went back to Antioch. So Paul has taken this couple with him. They get to Ephesus. He leaves them there. He goes on and visits all these other cities and churches, and they're still in Ephesus. So we read in verse 24, this very interesting thing that happens. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord, and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John the Baptist's baptism. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and they explained the way of God even more accurately to him. Okay. Are you lost? It's okay. I promise. It's all right. It's going to make sense by the time we get done this morning. We're going to look at some other passages. I'm going to help kind of track their journey. Everything we just read here and the things we're going to talk about, it's going to take place over the course of about two decades. And by the time we get done, you'll really have a strong sense of who they are. But this morning, I want to highlight what makes this couple such a power couple. Like, I want to know, I I want to help you to see what I see in them, why I think they're so wonderful and amazing, and why, if you were to actually pattern your marriage after some of the qualities and characteristics that we see here in this couple, you would have a better relationship for it. In fact, there are four things that I see in Acts chapter number 18, qualities or characteristics that that were present in their marriage that I want to challenge you to try to cultivate in your own marriage. It might be that you're doing all these things really well already. Keep it up. But if your marriage feels weak, if it feels like you're missing alignment and not on the same page with your spouse, then I think you could focus on these four and you would have a much healthier relationship as a result of that. Okay. And uh, if you're single, that's okay. Because these same four principles you can put into, you can put into practice in every single one of your relationships, friendships, coworkers, neighbors, whatever it might be. And you would actually find those relationships getting stronger and healthier as well. All right. God wants you to experience intimacy and impact in your marriage. And this couple gives us a great example of how to make it happen. So the first quality that they possess that we see here is unity. Aquila and Priscilla. Priscilla had great unity. They were fully united together as a couple. How do I know that? Well, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, the names of Aquila and Priscilla come up seven times throughout the scripture. Do you know that every single time the names come up, they always come up together? It's always Aquila and Priscilla or Priscilla and Aquila. We never read about Aquila did this all by himself. And we never read Priscilla was over here doing this all on her own while Aquila was off watching the football game or something, right? Like these two are the peanut butter and jelly of the New Testament. If you hear about one, you've got the other. They have so much unity that when the scriptures speak of them, when people thought of them, they didn't think about Aquila the man and Priscilla, the woman, they just thought about Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team. They had that kind of unity. It's not accidental that every single time their names are brought up together in the scriptures, uh, that, that they're mentioned together. That is on purpose. It is meant to communicate that there was a unity between these two couples that could not be broken or divided. The, the scriptures always speak of them as a couple and not an individual. 
but it goes beyond just their names. Did you, did you catch in verse number three, the Bible says that they worked together as tent makers. They worked together in the same small business. They weren't just husband and wife, or even mom or dad, if they had kids, they were also co-workers. They were also partners in their business venture. Now listen, <laughs> our staff is laughing because I'll be the first to admit that working with your spouse is not always the easiest thing, okay? It's usually my fault. I'll just say that as well. But listen, when you don't work together, you get an eight-hour break from each other every single day. And some of you guys really need that break from one another. But when you work together in the same office, or you're, you know, you're working remotely, but you're sharing the basement together, whatever it might be, when you don't get that separation and that break, you better really like each other. You better enjoy one another's company. You better work well together because when you're working together with your spouse, not only do you have to agree on decisions about your marriage and the home, but also the business and the finances, and it can get very, very messy very, very quickly. Not every couple does or should work together, but Aquila and Priscilla were able to make it work. Why? Well, because they had a unity. They enjoyed one another's company. They were committed to the partnership in ways that, that many of us uh, don't, don't fully appreciate, I think. There's another thing that, that illustrates their unity, and that is, it seems really apparent to me that they shared the same values as a couple. They shared the same values. They, they valued, appreciated the same sorts of things. They were pursuing the same sorts of things in life. In, in verse number three also, we're told that the Apostle Paul, now keep in mind, okay, when, when this happens in Acts chapter number 18, the Apostle Paul is a strong stranger to Priscilla and Aquila. In fact, he's a stranger with a checkered past because they've heard that this guy used to be the chief persecutor of the church. And then he supposedly had this crazy conversion experience. And now he's a great gospel evangelist. And suddenly he's shown up in their town. But when they meet him, what ends up happening? The scriptures tell us the apostle Paul moved into Aquila and Priscilla's home and lived with them there for 18 months. Can you imagine some dude with a shady past crashing your couch for the next year and a half? That would put a strain on any marriage. And yet these guys seem to take it all in stride. There's no hint in this passage at all that Aquila was putting down his foot as the man of the house. The apostle Paul's going to come stay here and woman, you're going to like it. And there is also no indication at all that Priscilla is making decisions on her own. There is a unity, a cooperation. There is a connectedness and alignment between this couple that if we started to have in our marriages, boy, oh boy, we might like them, enjoy them, appreciate them a whole lot more. We see another example of this in Romans chapter number 16. So I'm going to explain kind of their timeline as a married couple in just a moment. But when we go to Romans 16, we're kind of at the end of this 20 year period that we're talking about today. And uh, what we find out is they are hosting a church in their home. Uh, the book of Romans was written to the church that met in Aquila and Priscilla's home. So like this is a couple that both seem to value hospitality, who both seem to value 
serving other people in Jesus' name, willing to be generous, willing to give, willing to help. There was an alignment between these two couples that illustrates the unity that they had. See, I think Priscilla and Aquila understood a principle of modern marriages that we very often lose sight of. If I've ever done your wedding, you've heard me say this. Marriage is the permanent exchange of me for we. Marriage is the permanent exchange of me for we. My friends, if you are not ready to say no to yourself for the rest of your life, so you can say yes to your spouse and kids, you are not ready to get married yet. (laughs) Because marriage is the permanent exchange of me for we. Now, I don't mean that once you get married, you're no longer an individual and you need to give up all your hobbies and lose your identity. That's not what I'm communicating. Instead, what I'm saying is, when you get married, when you make a covenant commitment to your partner, what you're saying is, listen, anytime for the rest of our life together, That there is a tension or a conflict between what I want or what's good for us as a family. I'm going to choose we instead of me. That that we are going to be so united that people don't talk about Dan and Amber. They talk about Dan and Amber. That there is no more me. There's only a we. There's a family. There's a new unit. Do you understand? This is why Jesus said a man leaves his father and mother and he is joined to his wife and they are no longer two but one. Don't let man separate what God has joined together. Marriage in God's eyes from a biblical perspective is the permanent exchange of me for we. Aquila and Priscilla got this. Unfortunately, in our world today, we tend to overlook this. We tend to misinterpret this. We want to hold on to our individuality. We look at our spouse as a, as a tool to meet our needs and desires. And they can do that. But can you imagine how good a marriage could be if you had two people who weren't concerned with what they got from the relationship? but instead with what they gave to the other person. I mean, that sounds like a really wonderful marriage to be a part of. So uh, let me ask you, if, if you're married, how much unity is there in your relationship? How much unity would you say exists between you and your spouse? Now, you can use whatever metric you want to grade your marriage on this, okay? I don't care. You can make it up, choose for yourself. But I'm curious, how much unity, how much alignment would you say there is between you and your spouse? See, um, for, for most of us, we start out very, very aligned. But then quickly, we start to notice, oh, there's a little misalignment here. It's not much. Like, I thought we were exactly parallel to one another, but it seems like now we're off just by like a degree or two. And there'll be a temptation to say, it's just a degree or two. That's nothing big, right? But watch this now. If you're off by just a degree or two, and then you continue on that trajectory for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years or longer, pretty soon you're going to say, how did we drift so far apart? It's because we didn't protect the alignment, the unity that we should have. Even a little disunity, even a little misalignment over time can absolutely destroy a marriage. So do you have unity? Is there alignment? Do you and your spouse value the same sorts of things? Um, If you say... 
you know, I think there's good alignment, but it could always be better. Or like, we are miles apart already. And I'm wondering if it's even possible to bring us back together. It is. Okay. So one of the things you can do to start to bring about alignment, in fact, probably the most important thing, I do a lot of counseling as a pastor, premarital, marital, postmarital, postmortem, like I do it all. Okay. And um, what I find very, very often is the key. Uh, we have a couple of counselors, professional counselors in the room right now. They would probably back me up. Let me hear an amen if I'm right. The key, the thing that most couples are missing. And if they were actually to improve in this area, everything would get drastically better is good communication. Open, honest, vulnerable communication with one another. If you don't have healthy and open and honest communication with your spouse, then you will never have genuine unity with one another. And if you're fighting for unity, the place you should start is getting much better at talking to one another, looking at each other face to face, saying, this is really what I'm feeling. This is what I'm dealing with. This is what you do that drives me crazy. Okay. We've got to be willing to do that as hard as it is because open communication, honest communication is a key to bringing alignment and unity. Another one is healthy conflict resolution healthy conflict resolution. When you fight, how do you fight with one another? Are you fighting to win the argument or are you fighting to strengthen your marriage? I see a lot of couples that are fighting to win the argument. And it's no wonder that their relationship feels like it's crumbling and buckling from within because we're not fighting for unity. Instead, we're fighting to win. And and we've already mentioned shared values. Like we've got to get on the same page with like what we think is important in life. What are we spending our lives doing? What are we using our money for? How are we parenting our kids? What are we directing them and launching them out towards? There's got to be unity there in our shared values. All right. Now. Again, if you are not married, uh, this is still good advice. In your friendships, fight for unity. In your relationships with your friends and neighbors, like fight for unity. Here in our church, please fight for unity. Work hard to have alignment, not with me, but with one another and with what God wants to do through us. This is a principle of all relationships, but it's especially important when it comes to marriage. Aquila and Priscilla, they demonstrated genuine unity. The second quality that I see them possessing is stability. Unity, second one is stability. Let me be really clear here. The stability that they have has nothing to do with the circumstances they're living in. They have a stability, a calm, a confidence, a peace, a faith about the future that has nothing to do with what they're currently going through. I told you like their whole like timeline and journey is pretty confusing. So I want to put a map on the screen and help you to understand what this couple had uh, gone through and experienced. Okay. Um, I, I thought maybe I could do it without a map. No, no, no. I need the map. Okay. So we're told that uh, Aquila, the husband, was a Jewish man that was born in the region of Pontus. Pontus was uh, on the far eastern side of the Roman Empire. It's currently in modern day Turkey. Okay, so he grew up in Pontus. We don't know if he met his wife there or if he met Priscilla after his first move. But what we hear in Acts chapter number 18 is that at some point after they got married, they moved to Rome and they were living the good life, baby. They were eating gelato and sipping espresso and riding gondolas. I know that's Venice and we're talking about Rome. Just roll with me here. They were living the dream until a Caesar named Claudius came to power. 
And when Caesar Claudius came to power, he got into a conflict with the Jewish people that lived in the city of Rome. Secular historians tell us that there was an uprising or there was some sort of kerfuffle that was led by a Jewish person named Crestus, which could have been like an actual Jewish dude named Crestus. Many historians believe it was a misunderstanding of the title Christus, Christ, and it was the Christians, but hey, whatever, we'll roll with this. Okay, so there is this conflagration, this fight between uh, Claudius Caesar and the Jews. And so he says, you know what? You don't want to follow my rules. If you're a Jew, get out. Every single person that was Jewish by birth, by heritage, was forced to get out. And the Jews were like, what about our houses? And he said, too bad, so sad. But we don't want to leave. I don't care. If you stay, you'll be arrested and tortured. And so they were forced to leave the good life in Rome, and they ended up in the city of Corinth. When they got to Corinth, this is where they met the Apostle Paul. Things seem to be going well. They're staying there for quite a long period of time. And he says, guys, you know what? I'm going to make a journey a little bit eastward, and I want you guys to come with us. And they're like, but Paul, like, we've established our lives here. We've got our tent making business. We just moved from Rome. Honestly, we're not looking to move again. He's like, no, no, I want you guys to come with me. I think God wants to use you in big ways. So they leave Corinth. They go to Ephesus. When they get to Ephesus, Paul's like, all right, peace out. You guys stay here. I'm going to go do my own thing. And they're like, dude, we left our business. We left our city. We don't know anybody here in Ephesus, like, you're just going to abandon us? And he's like, don't worry, it'll be okay. And he leaves them there. So they spend a lot of time in the city of Ephesus. And eventually they think to themselves, kind of miss Rome. It sounds like my wife, by the way, she's always like, we need to go back to Rome. Okay. So they decide to leave Ephesus and move back to Rome. Cool, cool, cool. Except after they get to Rome, there's a new Caesar that comes to power, dude named Nero. You might have heard of Nero once or twice. Very famously, half the city of, or 80% actually is the actual number, 80% of the city of Rome burned to the ground while Nero was the Caesar. And so he needed somebody to scapegoat, somebody to blame. Who did he blame? The Christians. And so the Christians were so heavily persecuted that they had to flee Rome. Stay with me here. They had already got kicked out of Rome once for being Jews. Now they're getting kicked out of Rome again for being Christians. Our guess is, we don't know this for certain, but since 80% of the homes in Rome burned down, it's very likely that they lost their home for a second time. And so before it's all said and done, we read in the book of 2 Timothy, they're back in Ephesus one more time. In 20 years, I know this is still kind of confusing. That's okay. What you need to know is that in 20 years, this couple moved seven or eight times across the Mediterranean. If you've ever been to that part of the world, these are not close. It's not like they were moving across town. They were like, you know, we've been in a starter home for so many years. It's time to step up to an executive. And then they got old and they were like, we need to downsize. And so they went to a condo. No, no, no. They're crossing the country. They're crossing oceans. They're following God. They're getting kicked out. They're experiencing racial animus. They're getting religiously persecuted. Nothing about their circumstances is stable or calm. And yet this couple remains stable and calm. How? Because their life wasn't built on their circumstances. Their life was built on their identity in Jesus. 
they knew, they just had this sense that like, babe, we are never going to abandon each other and God's never going to abandon us. So what do we have to fear? It's going to be okay. In the end, we're going to win. They had this confidence that God had them in the palm of his hand. And so no matter what life might have thrown at them, no matter what attacks the enemy might have slung their way, they were confident that they were going to be all right through it all. uh, Don't forget what the, the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter number eight. He says this, does it mean that God no longer loves us if we have trouble? or calamity, or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or even threatened with death? No. Despite all those things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Guys, when your life and marriage is built on Jesus, you can live anywhere in the world and learn to be happy. You can have abundance or nothing at all and still find satisfaction. You can be respected by the world or you can be persecuted by the world. You can have a huge family or you can have no family at all. You can be sick or you can be healthy. It doesn't matter if your confidence, if yourself, if your identity and your marriage is built on Jesus, his unchanging and undying love for you. It doesn't really matter what storms might come your way. So let me ask you, does your marriage have that level of stability? Mine doesn't, but we're working on it. A confidence that doesn't come from life circumstances, but it transcends them. A resilience that refuses to be bent or broken by the worst that the world might throw to you. I believe it's God's desire for you to have that kind of relationship. Aquila and Priscilla had it, and I'm going to do everything I can to have it as well. Another characteristic about their marriage is humility. Humility. So they had unity, they had uh, stability, and they had humility. They're all going to rhyme today. One of the most interesting things, okay, I told you this couple's mentioned seven times in the scripture, and their names are always mentioned together. But here's a fascinating thing. If you track it three times out of seven, it's listed as Aquila, the husband, and Priscilla, the wife. So husband, then wife. Four times out of seven, it's listed as Priscilla, the wife, and Aquila, her husband, essentially. All right. Now, in the first century, listing the names of a couple always followed a formula. It was always husband, then wife. It was always Dan and Amber, never Amber and Dan, okay? After all, I mean, it's Mr. and Mrs. Sueza, okay? The husband always takes priority, except with this couple. If you were reading a letter in the first century from the Apostle Paul, and you came across the names, uh, the, the phrase uh, Amber and Dan, your eyebrows would immediately go up. You'd be like, that Apostle Paul, he's so silly, man. He wasn't even paying attention. He put her name instead of his name first. It must have been a mistake. Proofreader didn't catch that, right? But then you see it happen again and again and again. It's intentional. The fact that sometimes 
it's her name that's listed first and sometimes his name that's listed first. Again, to us in 2024, we're like, yeah, we could interchange name. They didn't do that in the first century. This would have been so wild and surprising to people. In fact, many theologians believe the fact that Aquila, uh, sorry, Priscilla, I always get him confused. Priscilla's name is listed first more often indicates that she might've been the more prominent one in the relationship. That like she might've been the more talkative talkative one, the more direct one. She might've actually been the leader, so to speak, within their marriage ministry. Either way, what I love about the fact that sometimes it's him and sometimes it's her is that it illustrates that they weren't worried about who got the credit. They weren't fighting for who had control inside of the relationship. Who gets first billing doesn't matter because there's no me anymore. There's only a we. It's okay if you list her first. I don't lose anything that way. In fact, it's probably a good thing. There was a willingness to share the spotlight. They weren't threatened by each other's successes or their shortcomings. Priscilla and Aquila, I I believe they really took to heart the Apostle Paul's teaching in Ephesians chapter number five, verse 21. And remember... They, they had the church in Ephesus meeting in their home. They also had the church in Rome meeting in their home. So this is wild, okay? Both the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans were written to churches that met in their homes. These, like, these people are so important in the New Testament. You've never even heard of them. Drives me crazy. Okay. Um, so they would have been familiar with this. They would have seen this. Ephesians chapter number five, verse 21. Scripture says this. Each of you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Each of you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. My friends, I will die on this hill. You already know this if you've been around here for a while. Absolutely, 100%. Ephesians chapter number five calls women to submit to their husbands or wives, excuse me, I should be specific. Uh, It calls wives to submit to their husbands. And here's the proof. A few verses earlier, it says that men, uh, husbands should submit to their wives. Each of you should submit to one another out of your reverence or love for Christ. What does it mean to submit? It literally means to look after somebody else's good. It means I'm going to set aside my wants, wishes, and desires so that I can lift you up and help you to accomplish everything that God wants you to do. It it literally means to serve the other person. When we submit to one another, In every way, like literally husbands and wives submit to one another. You could argue there is a sense in which parents submit to their children. You give up what you want in life to give them what they need. Are you tracking with me? When we submit in this way, we're actually following the example of our savior. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I think God's design for couples, and and I share this usually in premarital counseling, I think God's design for couples is this. He wants them to experience mutual satisfaction through mutual submission. Mutual satisfaction through mutual submission. Godly marriages strive for humility and selflessness in orientation toward the good of the other person, not trying to take control, not trying to take all the credit, not worried about whether or not they're obeying or they're submitting or they're no. Instead, it's like, how can I love and serve you? How can I give my life? so that you can experience God's very best. Can you imagine a marriage in which two people were fully committed, 
to meeting the needs of the other person and not overly concerned with whether or not their partner was meeting their needs. It's hard to even imagine a marriage like that. There's another example of their humility. We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to wrap this up, but there's another example of their humility in uh, Acts chapter number 18, okay? Um, they, They are in Ephesus. They're hosting the church in Ephesus, or at least one of the churches, uh, they have a guest preacher that comes by. It's this dude named Apollos. And you remember, Apollos is a very gifted communicator. The Bible says like he is articulate, he's funny, he's got the drip. Everything about this guy is good. They listen to him preach. They like what he says, but they realize his theology is not wrong. However, his theology is incomplete. He doesn't know the full story about Jesus And so when they sit there on a Sunday morning and they listen to a preacher say some things that they don't agree with, what did they do? Well, they pulled out Twitter, excuse me, X, and they started tweeting about preachers today. They ain't like the preachers used to be. This guy probably didn't go to seminary. Nobody should be following him. He's a heretic. Mark him. Get rid of him. Don't follow Apollos, you guys, because this dude doesn't know anything. They didn't do that. They didn't go to their connect group. By the way, I'm, I'm mentioning connect groups, but I'm not subtweeting any connect groups today. This is not going on. I'm just using an illustration. They didn't go into their connect group, sit around in a circle the next Wednesday night and say, boy, I miss Paul. I liked it more when Paul was the preacher of this church. He was so much better than this new guy. You know, we laugh and we say, that's silly. They wouldn't have done that actually. Have you read the book of 1 Corinthians? The letter to the church in Corinth was written because after Ephesus, Apollos goes on to Corinth and he becomes one of the leaders of that church. And the church actually divides in half. This is 1 Corinthians chapter number one with one group saying, we are faithful to Paul, the original OG apostle. And the other Half of the church saying, no, nah, I like Apollos. I like the way that boy talk. And so Paul has to write him a letter and say, what are you guys doing? We're all followers of Christ. Who cares who's in charge? So when they hear that this guy is here and his, his theology is not complete, what do they do? They pull him aside privately and they give him the information he's lacking. Like, this is a good principle, okay? If you're, if you're a, a business leader or something like that, take this to heart. Write it down if nobody's ever told you this. Praise people in public, correct people in private. Hey, if you're a team leader at Connect Church, let me remind you that the standard is you praise people in public, and if there needs to be correction, we do it privately. Why? Because we're not trying to tear people down. We're trying to build people up. Yeah. They had a humility, They knew more than the pastor, but they weren't trying to tear him down. They were trying to build up the church and God's kingdom. Again, just another example of how great this couple was. They were like dripping with the fruit of the spirit. By the way, um, 
I think this, I told you earlier, it's like frustrating to me that this couple doesn't get as much coverage and honor in the modern church. And really and truly, I believe it's because the role that uh, uh, Priscilla, the woman takes here in ministry and read Romans 16, you'll see uh, similar things there as well, is so uncomfortable for modern Christians with how they interpret 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 12 or 14, that they're like, well, this girl clearly seems to be violating what those passages say. So maybe we ought to just not talk about her. Okay, thanks. That's a tragedy. That's a shame because she's held up as an example of what a godly woman looks like here. Okay, final quality. This is it. I'm done. Two minutes. Final quality that made Aquila and Priscilla so strong was a shared commitment to ministry. 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 Every time we see this couple, they are serving Christ by serving others. But it's really important to remember, guys, that Priscilla and Aquila were not apostles. They were not elders. They were not ordained ministers. They were literally a couple sitting in the pew one day. They met the apostle Paul. He started talking about ministry and they were like, well, we could help. You need a place to hold church services? Yeah, you could use our home. We, we would host a connect group. I could brew coffee. That's, that's easy. I could do that. Yeah, I used to play guitar back in the day. I could do that. This was like, we tend to think about ministry and we get scared. You know, we're like, ministry is for like you and Amber. You guys are ministers, not me and my guy. Yes, you and your guy. Ministry simply means serving other people in Jesus' name. That's all ministry is. It's not about titles. It's not about salaries. It's not about business cards. It is literally about Christians serving other people in the name of Jesus, their savior. If you're willing to do that on any level, guess what? You are a minister. This couple was committed to ministering together alongside of one another. Can I tell you one of the greatest joys in the entire world is serving Jesus alongside of your spouse. There is almost nothing better than that. Why? Because you're investing yourself in something greater than yourself. You're not merely trying to build a legacy that lasts a generation or two. You're trying to build an eternal legacy. You're laying up, storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's a beautiful thing. And if you and your spouse can get aligned in serving people in ministry, it will bring a depth. It will bring a purpose and an alignment to your marriage that you might not have experienced before. There are plenty of opportunities to do ministry together inside and outside the church. As a couple, why not come down to the drop-in center with us some Tuesday night and serve people in need? If God has blessed you with a wonderful house, why not say, yeah, we'll host a connect group. That's cool. We're not going to lead it, but you can use our living room or our basement. Why not? Why not get to know your neighbors and look for needs to meet uh, right there in your local community? Why not serve together on Sunday mornings? Why not lead a connect kids classroom? Why not serve together in the tech ministry? Why not? It is a beautiful thing when you and your partner are committed to eternal ministry together. In the end, I'm convinced that God wants married couples. He wants you, 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 you. He wants you to experience both intimacy and impact in your marriage. Intimacy and impact. Some of y'all are like, I'll just settle for intimacy. Well, he wants both. He wants you to have both, okay? Intimacy and impact. And if you're looking for more of that, maybe you could follow the example of Aquila and Priscilla, a couple that fought for unity, a couple that had stability that went beyond their circumstances, couple 
that, that expressed humility towards one another and was committed to ministering together in Jesus' name. I want to pray for our married couples. And I, I'm just asking that God, you would unite together the, the hearts, the minds, the souls, the bodies of each and every married couple at Connect Church. God, would you help them to recover the love that they had for one another at the very beginning? I'm praying, God, that they would see each other as a blessing, God, that they would see uh, their partner in life and God, somebody that they can be honest with and share their hardest times with and God, somebody who's going to be there on their best days. God, would you just give them the marriage that they've always dreamed of, or at least God, give them the desire to work towards that marriage. It's not easy. We need your help, but we believe marriage is a gift. And so we're offering ours to you today, God, and we're praying that you'd be honored and glorified and you'd help us to be obedient to whatever work you need to do in our homes. And God, I pray in this moment for the singles in our church. God, whether they're still single or newly single, single because they want to be or because they don't, God. Would you remind them of the words of 1 Corinthians 7, that they are not a lesser class Christian. They're not waiting for the person to come in and complete them, but instead you've given them opportunity. You've given them a season in which they can honor you and experience things that they they would never get to experience if they were married with children. So God, help them not to put their hope in a husband, not to put their hope in a wife or in children or some future status, but instead, God, to build their identity and life on you here and now and to trust that that's enough. Oh God, help us to pursue you in our marriages and as individuals. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen and amen.